one of the last things we said was, I will never stop fighting for you, honey. And he's like, I love you more than I've ever loved anybody, but I can't keep ruining our lives. Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This podcast, weekly show dedicated to highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. And if you enjoy this show and would like to support this podcast, consider joining my Patreon. You'll gain instant access to over 70 exclusive bonus episodes, entries into giveaways, a discount on merch, and more. Your support allows me to continue bringing you these important stories. So head over to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and become part of the community. I'm your host, Carling, a Canadian queer-identifying 30-something-year-old, providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard. All right. Hello, Melissa. Hello. How are you? Doing all right. Trying not to sweat everything that I'm drinking right now. It's so is hot Is it so here. hot? Yes. The humidity is like a thousand percent. Yeah. Oh, well. It's not snowing, so I guess that's nice. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Well, I'm so excited to chat with you. I've been really looking forward to today, even though we're talking about some pretty serious stuff. So I would love it if we just dive right in. If you can introduce yourself, tell me who you are, where you're from, what you do, and then we'll find where your story starts. Sure. So my name is Melissa, and I currently live in sort of Western Virginia. I relocated from Southern Maryland to be closer to my parents for this time in our lives. I am a mom to four. My stepson is 16, and then I have an 11-year-old son, an 8-year-old son, and a 3-year-old daughter. And yeah, we're just doing life. Now, the three kids live with me. Um, step, my stepson is um, with his grandparents right now. And what do I do? I'm a mom right now. I, <laughs> I would say like survive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been in um, the ed tech world for many years. I had a job that I absolutely loved as a software trainer and implementer. I was laid off in November just due to cuts. They bought companies and had redundancy. They let a lot of us go. And I just have not found anything since then. I was looking pretty hard and then March came and so I stopped. So now I'm just kind of with the kids and then come fall, I'll try to find something part-time, maybe back in ed tech, maybe life is taking me somewhere else. We'll see. Yeah. So your story, you sent me an email and it kind of starts a long time ago, like yeah. when you were three. So I get, where do you feel like your story, where do you want to begin with your story? I guess from, I don't know. I mean, there's so much to it, right? There's my story is one of a lot of loss. And I think while that is important, everybody comes to the table with certain things that they've gone through in their lives, right? Whether it's their parents got divorced or their favorite grandma died, you end up at this point in your life where you realize, okay, this isn't just like a fluke thing anymore. This is actually affecting my life on a day-to-day -day basis. And how do I look at that and then, you know, move forward and help heal from it? So I mean, it was like a brief overview. Yeah. When I was three, my caregiver, basically like my second mom died suddenly and nobody told me about it. There wasn't any conversation, which is sort of ironic now that my daughter is three and has yeah. lost her dad. So there's kind of this, what do I wish my parents had done differently? My mom and I have conversations about it all the time. So that wasn't talked about. Was the theory that just like you were three, you wouldn't understand? Yes. yes. Yeah. Like kids yeah. understand her a lot. Yeah. I mean, and I was three and nine months, so I was almost four. 
Um, and the kicker of it was my brother had been born two weeks earlier. So I had gone from an only child to then sharing my mom. And then I lost basically my second mom because I'd been yeah. with her <clears throat> since I was six weeks old. She cared for me full time. So, yeah, it was just they didn't think that I would understand. And so it was just we're going from Mrs. Hendricks' house and now we're going to be at this new lady's house. And thankfully, the family that my mom found was amazing. The mom, we're actually still in touch. She had seven daughters and a son, and I was just another one of their kids. You know, she welcomed oh, me wow. in and it was, yeah, it was the best place for me. But, yeah, just that open conversation just wasn't wasn't given to me. You know, just wasn't. Yeah. They didn't do it back then. So I don't, you know, I don't hold any ill will towards my parents or anything. I know they did the best they could. My mom still saved the, like the brochure from the memorial service because she thought that one day I might want it. And I did. I did. I did want it. So yeah, you know, 40 years later, but it's okay. Yeah. I really think like any age experiences loss, it might just show up differently or show up a little mm -hmm. bit later, but that's like a, a huge trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then growing up otherwise, was your life pretty typical? You said you lost grandparents. Yeah, grandparents. But I did have triplet siblings that were born when I was nine. But as far as losing, I felt pretty lucky. You know, I felt pretty lucky coming into adulthood. I was like, wow, I really lost isn't something that I'm I've had to really go through. You know, I've not lived a charmed life. Of course, we've all been through things and being the eldest sibling of, of five kids, I didn't get exactly what I needed from my parents all the time, but we were well taken care of. My parents took me, you know, put me in private school and they were always just trying to be involved in our lives as, as much as they could be. So yeah, so I felt very untouched by by real loss, by real, real grief for a long time, ironically enough. Yeah. So then when I was 18, I got pregnant unexpectedly and grappled with keeping him versus placing him for adoption. Uh, abortion was not an option for me once my parents discovered uh, it was just a personal decision. I had definitely considered it. Uh, but for me, once my parents knew, I was like, well, I'm going to move forward with this one way or the other. So I ended up finding an amazing family and placing him for adoption. It's very open. He's known about it from the beginning. So kind of opposite of me when I was, you know, three, four, that age at five, he's saying, I was in your tummy and you gave me to my real mommy. And, you know, I grew in your belly and you were my first mommy. And so that conversation, even, you know, then we just really wanted to change the dialogue about hard things that can be discussed and kids can understand it. Yeah. And do you still have a relationship with that family today? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Kathy is like a sister to me. She's we actually were featured on Humans of New York. My story is is on there. So. Can oh, wow. I love them. Go back and link, link it or something. But yeah, they, he did a Brandon did a two two part two parter on us. So, yeah, we're very close. Aiden is so successful. I mean, this kid, he's he's 25 and he's buying houses and, you know, renting them out. I mean, he's just he graduated wow. from Virginia Tech with a double major. Just so proud of him he really is an amazing kid that's very cool yeah yeah it's wow. been a, a good relationship a lot of times she was the one who I could go to to kind of get me recentered. you know if I was sort of lost in figuring out who I was you know I was a kid I really was at 18 just a baby setting out into the world and 
she would always just give me so much grace and love. No matter if I stopped calling for a couple months or if I came by every day, she just open arms. So, wow. Yeah. I guess the next thing was meeting my first husband, Ryan, and we met in 2005 and got married in 2007. She was a rock star, I guess, as they say, a local <laughs> rock star who played guitar and sang and did bass and he and his buddies played locally for a number of years just ha having a great time uh, it was always his dream to play music and so he was able to do that and support you know support the two of us we moved to Nashville in 2010 because he wanted to be more in the music scene and we kind of just wanted a change of pace from being in we were, lived outside DC we were both born and raised there and so we thought, oh, we're married. Let's go try. Let's go on an adventure. And both of us always kind of wanted to, we're always trying to find ways out, you know, out of yeah. the Northern Virginia area. So we went to Nashville and things did not turn out how he expected musically. Um, it was just, I guess it said he did a lot of cover stuff and Nashville is more original and he just, it takes a while to get it get established and I don't think that we had enough patience or savings in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So he decided on his own to enlist in the Navy. And wow. then he came to me and was like, okay, I'm going to enlist in the Navy and I can leave in three months or I can leave in three weeks for boot camp. And I said, all right, let's do it. And he's like, well, I'm going to go in three weeks. And I said, okay. <laughs> so we did. Wow. <laughs> so you go from like a rock star's wife to a military uh, wife. A military wife. wife. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we, we were getting close. We were like, you know, we kind of want to start our family. And the idea was that I would stay home with the kids. That was always what he wanted for me and what I wanted for myself, at least for the first couple of years. And so he wanted to make sure that happened. So he enlisted and we were on the Navy journey for six years. We had our first son, Liam, in 2012. Um, in Great Lakes. So we lived in Great Lakes for a year. We moved down to the coast of Virginia for a year. And then he was in school for a couple of years. And then we were moved out to San Diego, which was my favorite. It was, it was like just the best place for me. I felt at home. I started a community and just found my tribe. So just found my mom group and really felt at home there. But then his ship got repositioned to Hawaii so after a year and a couple months in San Diego, we found out we were moving to Honolulu. And I was pregnant with our second. It was about nine weeks at that point. We had just found out. Oh, that. God. <laughs> yeah. And now you have to like pack up your whole life uh -huh. with a toddler. And two dogs. And these oh, dogs. Yeah. And they're little pugs. So <laughs> for Hawaii, they have these really strict standards of they've never had a case of rabies. So you have to get these shots you know, space the right amount of time. And then they just have all this paperwork you have to do. But the dogs, there were pugs were moving in the summer and we couldn't put them under the plane. And yeah, it's they were my hot. babies. They were like, you know, they're my first kids. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. So I got them as emotional support animals. <laughs> I'm pregnant, not that pregnant. So I, it's not that big of a deal, but just tired, you know, with yeah. the, the two-year-old, the two dogs, and all the stuff that we could carry on the, you know, that we could bring on the plane because we were going to be separated from our stuff for three months. Um, so, yeah, so we, we got there, we got settled, um, and then Ryan had to fly back and then take the ship back. So it, took, it was another two or three weeks before we were all back together as a family. But I loved living there. It was an experience of a lifetime. You know, it was, I never would have been able to do that otherwise, you know, the Navy. Yeah. 
moved us there, you know, paid for everything moving wise, you know, to get us there. It was hot, especially in the summer, but we loved it. My pregnancy there was so wonderful. Like I would, if I was ever feeling just, you know, shad and just heavy, I would just go swim in the ocean and everything was buoyant and just lovely, you know, like bath water. It was tough once Carter came because the newborn at the beach was a little tricky, but we had certain spots that we would go to and made sure that we always had our tents and, you know, shade and lots of water. Yeah. Um, but Ryan was a surfer and yeah, we really just tried to embrace that life. He struggled the whole time I knew him with drinking and when I met him, he was a pothead, but that was, I guess alcohol was his drug of choice. So things kind of got to a point where I was like, this is it's too much for me. I feel like we are not progressing as a couple because we keep getting into these drunken arguments at night. And then the next day would be tense. And I just felt this heaviness throughout our relationship. And so I said, can we please go to counseling? And he agreed. And basically the counselor was like, I can't do anything until you get sober because this is such a big roadblock for your wife that this is something that you're going to have to either choose to do or not be in the marriage anymore. So he did get sober for a little bit and it seemed to get better. But during that time, I just was realizing how much sort of emotional abuse and he had like narcissistic tendencies Mm -hmm. and I'm a caregiver. And so I just sort of took it on as like I deserved it. And it wasn't until I got into a group of other women where we were discussing things and I realized, oh, this isn't normal. Like I had moved 6,000 miles away from my family. So what a typical relationship, what a healthy relationship looked like, something that was had become foreign to me. There's a lot of yeah. gaslighting, and it's just a really confusing time, especially when I was, because I was drinking as well. So things would be kind of hazy of what actually happened. Why did we end up in that place? Why am I getting the silent treatment for three days, you know, for something that I don't really remember saying? So it was... A very difficult decision, but I ended the marriage. When we moved back from Hawaii to Virginia, he separated from the Navy. And I said, told him in, in March of 2017, I wanted a divorce. And he didn't take it very well. He said it was out of left field for him. And he kind of disappeared for a while. I didn't talk to him. He had started getting back into taking pills and just lots of drug use to try to ease the pain of what he was going through. But he ended up sort of getting things back together and started coming back around for the boys. He loved those boys more than anything, really. I mean, they were his reason for doing what he did, getting his head on straight and trying to provide a, a home for them to come visit and stay and getting a job and just having more stability for them. So we did like joint custody for a while. And actually in COVID, he was able to take them for a week at a time versus just every other weekend. Because they were doing online school. So that last year, they got to spend so much time with him and his family, which I was really happy about. But yeah, he had a good, stable job, benefits, you know, all that stuff. He met somebody. They got married. He bought a house. She has two kids, two daughters. So they kind of had this two girls and two boys and a little Brady Bunch. And the the kids got along so well because they were close and they're close in age. And had you started dating at this point? Yes. So I decided in summertime 2017, nothing serious. I would like to just kind of see what's out there. And I met a man on Bumble. Will was my first date that I went on. And I 
when I sat down to dinner with him, I was like, this man is it. I've been looking for you. <laughs> it was weird. I don't know how to explain it. It was just like, you're home. You yeah. are home. And I'm sure people will be like, oh, that's trauma. It's, you know, trauma connection or whatever. But at the time, he just felt so familiar to me. Um, and I still dated. We, I still went on other dates. We we decided we were going to be friends because uh, he wasn't in a place where he really was ready to date. He thought he was. But then he met me. It was like, oh, I'm not actually ready to date about someone I care about. I just want to go out and have fun and have a good time. So we kind of did that separately while also talking on the phone every night, you know, just kind of being best friends, being in, in each other's lives. So I did date a couple jerks and he helped me kind of dig my way out of those and tell me, hey, he shouldn't be talking to you like that or that's creepy. Or I would send him my location when I was on dates so that somebody knew where I was. Um, and he did, I did the same for him. The girls would you know, say certain things because he was such a sucker for love. And so <laughs> he would meet somebody and be like, I'm going to marry her. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're not going to shoot. No, look at her past. She said she didn't want to have kids. Why are you like, no, this isn't someone that you want to settle down with. So that went on for a while. And then actually in January of 2018, I moved into his basement because I could not afford the house that I was living in this super expensive area. So then we were roommates, still just platonic, but getting closer, spending lots of time together. All of our kids got along and yeah, so that was. And did he just have the one kid? Yeah. So he has, uh, he had full custody of, of his son, Isaac. Uh, his mom's in West Virginia. She's got two other kids. Well, was his primary um, caregiver for when he was two. So it was. Oh, wow. Yeah. We had the three boys. Got a little crazy sometimes. <laughs> and then how do you go from roommates and best friends to <laughs> marrying this guy? Yeah. Interesting. So, <laughs> you know. Full disclosure, and he knew this too. I was in love with him the whole time. While I was okay trying to see if anything else is out there in the back of my mind, we need to be together. And we would talk about it, and he would be honest and say, I just, I don't think so. You're just, you're not my normal type. And then I would argue and say, Yeah, maybe that's a good thing because yeah. all your other types break your heart and, you know, leave you on a, in a puddle on the floor. So we decided to move down to Southern Maryland to be closer to his family. He wanted like a bigger house, more land and possibly be on the water. And so he said, okay, let's do it. So we found this place on the water and just moved down. And it was, we were there maybe two weeks. And one night we're sitting outside on our dock. We have a boathouse and just this beautiful home. And he just looks at me and he said, I'm an idiot. I am absolutely in love with you. I've been in love with you since I met you. And I'm so sorry that it's taken me this long. And I said, it's okay, baby. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, oh, I knew. Yeah. It's yeah. funny when we called his mom. She was like, finally, man. Yeah. So that we just had a, you know, a wonderful couple of months. It was the kids would go to their dads and Isaac would go to his mom's. And so we'd have weekends to ourselves. And that was amazing because we actually kind of felt like we were dating. You know, we'd go out to dinner without the kids and. So we were like family in the week and then every other weekend we'd get to go play. And then Mother's Day, I found Mother's Day 2019, I found out I was pregnant with our surprise daughter, <laughs> which is unexpected. But that was kind of like, okay, this is where we need to be going. So he was at first like, I know I love you. I know I want to be with you, but is this going to last for a lifetime? You know, is this something that I want to sign up for? And then as he said, as soon as he found out we were pregnant and had kind of acclimated to the idea of being a dad again, you know, to a baby, that was it. He was signed up 
and we were ready to to commit. Now, we did not actually get married. We were what they call, we used to joke and say, if there was common law marriage, we would be husband and wife. We did wear rings, but he was waiting to kind of get his life into a better situation, financial situation before we signed the piece of paper. But yeah, from then on, we just would refer to each other, husband and wife. We welcomed our daughter in 2020, January of 2020, right before COVID. And then from then, it just kind of all fell apart. He was really a very outgoing, social person. We both worked remotely and he had anyway, but he would go on site to customers. He'd go into the office and all of a sudden that was gone. We couldn't even see his family who we had moved down to the area to be near. And we just became this little bubble. You know, he started working almost around the clock. His work had him do, he needed to do overnight tech support for this one company while also in the day doing his regular job. So yeah, so he started taking too much of his ADD medication in order to do that. And then it just kind of spiraled and snowballed. Lack of sleep, lack of access to to family, to friends. And then the medical care that we found, I, I just don't think they really got to the root of what was going on. They just were throwing medication at him. So it was just a, it was a dark time. I was by myself a lot. He helped out with Emma significantly. It, I would say the worst of it started in 2021. So 2020 was a hard year, but we were, you know, we would tag team with a baby. We'd put her to sleep. We'd help out with the kids who were doing their online school. Uh, the boys would be going to their dads every other week. So we had some, you know, amount of breathing room and, and connection time with each other. The 2021 was really when it came to a head. So in June of 2021, I got a phone call from Ryan's wife at 2 a.m. that she had found him dead. And she didn't know what had happened at that point. It was a complete surprise. Like he had just talked to the boys five hours before and said goodnight. So they were at your house, the boys? They were at my house. Yeah. Yeah. They're at my house. And I just, I was like, I don't even know what to do with this information like and then when it hit me I just collapsed you know it was just my boys without their dad I didn't know what I was gonna do or tell them yeah it was the day before day after summer had started so like their school had just ended they were looking forward to going to Outer Banks with him and something they did every year it was the day before Father's Day so it was just yeah it was a hard a hard weekend and how old were they at this point Six and nine. How do you tell boys that old that their dads died? Yeah. They were very confused. Will and I talked about it a lot. I talked with my parents, did some research, and basically we sat him down and just told him what happened. We didn't say how, because at that point we still didn't really know. I had assumed that he had probably taken something and had overdosed accidentally, uh, but I didn't have enough information so we just said, you know, his heart stopped working. And my oldest was just like, what? I just I just got a text from him, like a goodnight text from him. And, and there was just a lot of not understanding. And I think also being at our house when it happened versus being there, they were so separated from it. You know, there's such a, yeah, like their dad wasn't there. So the idea that he was gone was almost just like what the word I'm looking for is, but it was just like a thought. It wasn't really yeah. actually happening. So, yeah, that was, my six-year-old didn't get it, really. I mean, he cried, but I don't think he really understood. But 
Liam and him, my older one, they were closer. I mean, they were, he spent more time with him, you know, because yeah. Ryan and I were together until he was five. So he really had more of dad than Carter did. So, yeah, I'd say at that point, it was probably the turning, turning point, especially for Will. I don't, you know, he loved the boys so much and he was really their dad. I mean, he was their second dad. He did all the things that dads do and provided for them and loved on them and tucked them in and, you know, picked them up from school and checking a baseball and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know if it was just like a mental shift that happened where it was like all of a sudden I'm going from stepdad to now full-time father of four kids. And then on top of the stress from work, I, this is just my speculation, but that's really when it shifted. He ended up getting fired from his job. He just couldn't make meetings on time. He would work for days and then he would have to sleep for days because he was just so burnt out and exhausted. Like they were the ones asking him mm -hmm. to work overnight and then work in the day. So yeah, so that had ended. That, that period was before, but he was already now in a horrible habit of, you know, just working as much as he could until he crashed. Um, and that's what he would do. And then he couldn't show up for the regular things that he was expected to show up for. He couldn't get by on just his, I'm going to get this project done. They needed him to have check-ins and he couldn't, he just couldn't do it. Uh, and I think that's sort of where things came apart because that was his identity for so long. We ended up deciding that he would go to rehab, even though we'd been sober at this point since 2019. We stopped drinking in March of 20, 2019. And so he was going more for mental health. Um, and we really wanted something that was trauma focused. So at this point, we realized there was things from his childhood that were playing into his mental health and kind of what had gone wrong there. And so we wanted something trauma focused, but it's almost impossible to find a rehab center that takes Medicaid that can focus on that, you know, that is yeah. going to look at other uh, modalities and not just the 12 steps. And they kind of just told us what we wanted to hear to get him there, I think, looking back. And so did he complete a program once he was there? He did. He went to the inpatient um, up in Pennsylvania. He did an outpatient IOP and then he he did leave that one early. So there's kind of like graduated steps down. And I really wanted him to come home and be able to do a program while also being at home. Because at this point, he's still up in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, because they're all connected. You know, all the centers have their spots that they send you to. And we just couldn't find one that was close enough to home that made sense. So he and his counselor agreed that he would come home and do online um, things and then go to AA and, and things like that. But when he got home, we did counseling, but that was it. Life with a family just kind of took priority. And he was never, neither of us were very good at putting ourselves first, you know, in our own needs. Yeah. So I would say, maybe you should go to your meeting. And he's like, oh, Emma's down for a nap and I'm, I'm holding her. If I get up, she's going to wake up. And I'm like, that's okay, you know, but, and it just kind of slid. But we were still in couples counseling for a while and things were good. Like the boys were doing grief counseling. We were trying to talk about their dad as much as possible. At this point, we did find out that it was an accidental overdose. He had gotten a hold of some pills that had fentanyl in them and he did not know it. He never, ever would have taken them if he had known. Like they were Oxycontin that looked like regular Oxycontin, but they were actually cut with fentanyl. And so we told the boys that, just kind of explained to them 
what exactly had happened. And so, yeah, just trying to integrate this huge gap, this huge hole in our lives from their, that their dad had left and also trying to figure out how we're going to make sure that Will is in a stable place where he can be that father for them. And he was yeah. doing well for a while. And were the boys seeing their stepmom? So, yeah, so we would go, we went to Great Wolf Lodge. I don't know if you know what that is. But it's yeah. Like this. We went to Great Wolf Lodge. It was about nine months after Ryan passed. We finally got it all together. Um, they went and stayed with her for a couple weekends. Ryan's best friend, Bill, um, has has kept them for a weekend. And his brother, John, took, some, you know, took them to King's Dominion. So, yeah, everybody tries to kind of help out there we didn't have the planned you know every other weekend because she was yeah reeling you know from the loss yeah um, like she also lost a husband yeah i mean the boys basically lost their family they lost a stepmom and two sisters overnight in addition to their dad because that's something that could have continued you know we didn't live close i would have been open to to them you know continuing to stay there if they wanted to but was too much for her four kids and she had her ex-husband had the girls every other weekend so it was just very complicated as you know blended families and stuff is but yeah she's still a part of their lives and and we do see them yeah just not as much as i i would like but we're in touch and so will at this point he's not working but he's Mm -hmm. just trying to focus on getting better yeah and, and looking for a job and i was working we're doing couples counseling. He's doing regular counseling or reading books, do, you know, trying to figure out if we can get him into some kind of neurofeedback or, you know, EMDR. We're looking at somatics, just anything. I had read a book yeah. called Complex PTSD by Pete Walker, and it's fascinating. I mean, well, it was like, this is me. Like this whole book is I could have written it. He talks about like emotional flashbacks that basically shut you down where you can't function. You know, your mind is just like, you're not safe. You're not safe. And some people lash out. I mean, it's the fight, flight, freeze thing, you know, and yeah. Will, Will was a freezer and he would just go to his room or go, you know, go to our bed and just lay down and not wake up for a day or two. So it was a lot. It was, it was a lot for me. The inconsistency of when he was going to be okay, when he wasn't if he had taken too much of his medication again if he was up for three days because that was still have that was started happening again about six months after he got back from rehab because without that support system in place you're just going to go to what works you know even if yeah. it's not a great solution it was working somewhat so that was it was a struggle then when i lost my job in november that's when i was like okay shit is not good here like <laughs> this is really not good I am now not able to provide. You're not working. He still wasn't in a place where he could. He'd actually gotten a job and was there for a month and a half. And then they let him go too because he couldn't, he couldn't make the meetings. He couldn't, you know, do what they expected him to do. I'm like, okay, we need to stop doing this because the more hits you get, the worse you're going to feel about yourself. Let's just get you better. So then in January, he ended up getting sepsis somehow. I know he had a cut on his foot and it just never healed. And then he had this back pain that was, I'd never see. he, his pain tolerance was very high. And he was just like rolling around on the floor. I'm like, this is a couple of days. I'm like, we gotta get you to the hospital. Like, this is crazy. So it turns out he had sepsis. They flew him up to Georgetown University Hospital outside DC. He had sepsis around his spine. Um, so it was like masses on his spine. 
So they gave him this serious antibiotics, cleared it up. He ended up getting spinal surgery to pull out the mass. And then he also had one disc that needed to be replaced. We had like titanium, you know, screws in there. And it was serious. Like he was in the ICU for five weeks. Oh my God. Yeah. But during that time, they also had him on IV pain medication. Now, this is an addict who was, he was a recovering heroin addict back in 2000, 2000 or something, a long time ago. He he got clean and hadn't touched it since. Um, but pain medication was always something that was like, he knew if I take this, it makes me feel like a, a more normal person. But you can't get it regularly, you know, unless you're in pain or unless you're getting it from the streets. And neither of which he was. But when he was on it at the hospital, he felt normal. He felt happy. He felt like I can do things in life. And yeah, just kind of centered him and balanced him. So, but he was honest with them. He told them, you know, I have a history of drug use. So when they're releasing him, they say, well, we can only give you two days worth. But you have to find a pain management clinic. And I'm like, Okay, so for five weeks, they have you on... I mean, it was Dilaudid. Like, it, this wasn't just, you know... Um, yeah, it was like full-time. Yeah, it was morphine, basically. And so then they release him with two days' worth and tell him, you know, good luck finding a place. So he, we ended up finding a place. But then she got word... I guess the, his medical records came from the hospital where it said he had prior history of drug use. So then they released him from care. So, but, like, he still had pain... Yeah, just because he had an open are... wound in his back. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. So he's at the ER. You know, they're giving him medicine. You know, three days worth, four days worth. But they can only do it so many times that he could not find another pain management clinic to take him. We were going to go up to Baltimore. The, the last day was he was waiting on an ER prescription to be filled, and the pharmacist said, "Your insurance isn't going to pay for it. I can't fill it." And he just looked at me and he's like, babe, I'm done. Like, I can't keep fighting this. I am emotionally wrecked. I'm physically in pain. Nobody cares. Like, he was, I'll tell you, I got his phone the other day. His last phone call was to his neurosurgeon. He spent that whole afternoon begging for help. Begging. He spent seven minutes on the phone trying to get all of his neurosurgeon. And I found him 10 minutes later. I mean, he was gone. (laughs) I'm so sorry. He fought so hard, you know, and he was just, I remember like one of the last things we said was, I will never stop fighting for you, honey. And he's like, I love you more than I've ever loved anybody, but I can't keep ruining our lives. And he said, you're not ruining our lives. Like we can, we can find something. He's like, for what? That'll, that'll work for a little bit and then won't anymore. I know little work and nobody wants to help me with it. Nobody wants to give me what I need. And I'm like, what do you say to that? You know? Yeah. You're in so much physical pain. You don't think there's an end. Not to mention all the emotional agony that has been piled on for decades. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that and was... when you're fighting so hard and you feel like nobody. Nobody cares. helping. Nobody yeah. who can help is helping. It's helping. Yeah. It's like they don't yeah. understand the situation or how dire it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had tried. Yeah. He tried and tried. So, yeah. And it's unfortunate we're not the only ones. You know, I did a lot of research after and I found a number of people who ended their lives because they couldn't get 
their pain medication. People, other people may say, oh, well, they're just an addict. Like, yeah, but they were on this medication from a doctor. And so it changes your yeah. brain. And so you can't just stop it. Like, yeah. you can't. It is, it's unethical. I mean, it is not to mention just the, the withdrawal, the physical withdrawals of what happens, but especially with somebody who's, who has had, who struggles with addiction, you know, it's just, yeah, it pushes them past the point where they can manage. And so now are you home with the kids when this happens? So Liam was at his friend's house. Isaac was downstairs in his room. Carter and Emma are in the basement. We lived at a split level. So our house, our bedroom is on one side of the house and the kids are on the, the basement on the other side of the house. And we're making cookies and, you know, I heard him on the phone. I had come in with Emma behind me and I saw he had, he had the gun in his hand. It was like a 22, it was just a rifle. And I said, babe, put that away. Come on. You know, I didn't think that he was actually going to do anything. And I went, I couldn't go in to like actually do anything because there are three-year-olds behind me. So I sent them downstairs and I come back in and try to get it out of his hand. I said, please just give it to me. He's on the phone still, you know, talking to somebody. And he wouldn't give it to me. He was so strong. He's just a big guy. And I know he never would have done anything to me. But I'm like, what's the point of me wrestling? That What if it goes off accidentally? You know, because we're like yeah. having a tussle here. So I said, I'll be right back. And I went outside. and was like, okay, I got to get the kids out of the house and call for help here. We had a scare back in October where he was suicidal. And I called the cops and they took all of our guns. And I didn't know that one was left. So I get the kids, they were in the kitchen at this point. So then I get them down in the basement. They're like on the other side of the house. I go back in and he's gone. I mean, he looked like he was sleeping. Like I was so confused because it looked like he had a bloody nose. I don't know if this is like too much detail, but oh. I was just like, oh my gosh, what? He just looked like he was sleeping with blood coming out of his nose, but it wasn't like running. It just looked like he'd had a bloody nose. And I go and I lock the door behind me. I'm like, babe, what the hell? There's no, it's not a mess. It's not like. Uh, you worry about somebody, you know, yeah. coming after they kill themselves by suicide. And, you know, it's, it, it wasn't like that. I was so confused. And I was just like rubbing his arm and, you know, I moved his head and then I got it. It just took me a couple minutes. I think your brain doesn't want to register that. Yeah. And especially because he was so, he just looked like he was sleeping. I mean, I don't know if he like did research or something beforehand. I have no idea if I just am lucky in some. Thankfully, I get one one piece of luck thrown my way, but I am thankful that when I think back to that day, there is not a lot of trauma associated with it. Of course, the trauma of losing him and stuff, but not the added trauma of of graphic memories that I now have to purge or revisit in my dreams. So I got the kids out of the house. I'm on the phone with my one. I'm texting his sister. We just sit in the car and the cops show up. And, you know, once they had gone in and realized he was gone, they wouldn't let me back in the house. And so I'm just sitting outside. The kids are in the car and it's cold and it's like mid-March. I'm sitting out there without a jacket, just like sitting on the side of the house, just staring straight ahead. I don't know what the hell is going on right now. And they kept saying, you want a jacket? Do you want a jacket? Why don't you go in into the car with the kids? So I'm like, no, leave me alone. I'm sitting right here. Part of me wanted to be as close to his body as possible, you know, because I was right on the corner where he was. But yeah, I mean, there was like so many ambulances and all that stuff. And so then Liam, I didn't actually tell him for a day or two. He was at his friend's and I just, I put it off as long as I could, but 
yeah, telling your three-year-old who was literally just playing with her dad that she was never going to see him again. It was, yeah. And Carter just kept asking, what's going on, Mom? What's going on? Is Will okay? Is Will okay? Because he had been at the hospital, right? So he had been gone for a couple weeks, like almost a month, or actually it was a little over a month. And so they were kind of used to him being either sick or gone at the hospital, but he was there. Like he had been there that day. We'd been making cookies and playing and Carter says, well, okay, is well, okay. No, he's not okay. And I was like, baby, I'm sorry. He's gone. Like he died. And wow. Did he, is it, was it his surgery? He was more emotional than I was more in tune with his emotions. And so Carter, Liam, Isaac, even Emma knew that he had a hard childhood and that she was sad about it sometimes. A couple of days before it happened, Carter had come downstairs and Will was in the basement crying and he just snuggled up to him and said, what's wrong, Will? And she told him, you know, a little bit about what he was feeling and how, you know, how it affects, how what had happened to him in the past affects him now. And so, uh, yeah, it wasn't out of nowhere, right? It wasn't like, yeah, we're happy one minute and then he's gone. It was very, it was a very obvious lead up to it. Yeah. And then telling Liam Oh, God. He came out of the house and went over to his friend's house and said, I need you to come outside. And he knew, he just was like, no. And like, I'm so sorry. He sees Carter and Emma sticking their heads out of the window. So he knows they're okay. But he knew that something had gone wrong again. And how old was he at this point? So that he's 11. So six and nine and then 11 and eight. So how do you even begin to heal and process what the last few years have been like? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I just, like, do you have the answer? I was hoping. That just yeah, I'd be like, oh, sorry, was I supposed to? <laughs> I have taken the drink from a fire hose approach and just take in as much as possible and see what kind of what sticks. And so I read books. I listen to podcasts. I just am constantly absorbing, trying to find something that resonates with me. My first priority was getting us all into therapy by the grace of God that happened within two weeks of us moving i don't know how because it is damn near impossible to find therapists much less child therapists much less ones who take your medicaid insurance you know who have an opening who your kids yeah. click with you know all these things lined up so the boys see the same one and then emma sees um, a different one i am in i'm doing emdr therapy and somatic touch therapy so i have two different practitioners i see i've been doing uh, i wrote down my list of stuff i'm looking into i think we talked about like, like microdosing or like psilocybin yeah. ketamine kind of that aspect of it too mdma just trying to figure out can hallucinogens help heal some of this deep trauma i mean the, the obvious ones are recent right but what about yeah. the the patterns that i have continued throughout my life i'm looking into like past life hypnotherapy that kind of thing yeah. is there anything there that i'm continuing these karmic patterns and can release that energy i would say really my main focus is the kids you know and me but also, I have a tendency to go big picture, like, okay, how can I turn this tragedy into something amazing? 
But my <laughs> therapist is like, don't do that. Like you're trying to, it's like in internal family systems is a type of therapy that I really love. I have, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but like a little bit, we're all, we all have parts basically inside of us. So my managers, they're the ones that kind of keep you organized in your day rolling. There's firefighters and they're kind of the crazy one. And then there's exiles. Those are those the feelings and the parts that you don't want to show anybody. But anyway, my managers are, they're problematic. They are over-functioning to a point where it's like, I can't not do stuff, you know? So she's like, oh, okay, yeah. is this your managers or is this yourself? Yeah, it's my managers. They don't want to feel the pain. <laughs> they just want to get something done. Um, yeah. So yeah, kind of digging into that has been, yeah. So stop looking big picture, focus on the here and the now and the present. Um, even when it, you know, it sucks. And uh, I try to do meditations. I listen, like I said, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I exclusively listen to a widow podcast in the beginning just to hear other people's stories and how the hell yeah. they went from like devastation to okay. Yeah. So it's just wow. a bunch of stuff, essentially. I don't think there's any one thing that I'm like, yeah, that definitely worked. Yeah, there's things that, are, that definitely do work, but it's I think it's a combination of a lot of different supports modalities um, you know my increased awareness of things asking for help which I really yeah. hate doing but you know, yeah it's not like I don't like being needy but I kind of am like that that's okay yeah, like, it's okay yeah, yeah you should be yeah especially in this circumstance yeah I think it's so admirable and you should feel so proud that not only dealing with your own grief and trauma, but now, you know, you're tasked with carrying the grief and trauma of four yeah. little people that yeah. really, you know, also need help going through it. And you're actually like putting that at the forefront, yeah, like yours and their healing. And I think, I mean, you know, like just from your own childhood, that is going to make such a difference in so. how they navigate life. Yeah. I mean, there's, conversation even if i don't know the answers and i'll tell them you know if they ask me something i don't know here's yeah. what i think let's look it up or let's ask somebody i mean it, but a lot of times it's just a mess of feelings and you know i just try to be yeah. honest with them about where i'm at you know if things are overwhelming for me if i'm getting overstimulated because i'm feeling really yeah. triggered i tell them you know and i'm trying to tell them before I flip out and I get super angry because, you know, that's how I deal with grief sometimes. And they're becoming more aware of it too. You know, like, oh, I'm starting to get a little, just doing a little head thing. We better, should everybody scatter? <laughs> give her space. Yeah. Or if I'm crying, you know, they'll all come up and give me hugs. And yeah, they're sweet. It's oh my gosh. I'm so, so, so thankful that you've reached out and yeah. shared your story. I think like you know i say it to everybody but even if you can't relate to the entire story like there are so many pieces of your story that even like i can yeah. relate to and i think it's so important that we have these conversations and talk about it because i think it'll help a lot of people yeah normalize grief and death and struggle and addictions and mental health problems i mean if yeah our story may be kind of a wild compilation of all of those things but those yeah. things affect everybody i just think that we're, we're all going to be touched by grief at some point in our lives you know 
Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media, share this podcast with your friends, and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com slash I did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content, and ad-free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. I hope you all have a fantastic week ahead and we'll talk soon. Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a die-hard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap.